So welcome back, and welcome to those who are here for the first time, and welcome also, of course, to those who are joining us uh, through the internet. I said yesterday I, I'd like to uh, ask us to explore the silence of Jesus as we encounter it in the story that we are telling and retelling uh, this week, the story that we have to interiorize, not just look at, we have to ideally see ourselves in the story as we do in a dream. In a dream we, we play all the roles in a way in, the, in a dream. This is more than a dream, but it has that quality of a, of a good story, powerful story, in that it absorbs us and we become part of it. So it's in this way that we, I think, can touch that silence of Jesus, which really contains the meaning of the story. We can come up with all sorts of explanations, theological and psychological and sociological, anthropological, of the story. But uh, the real meaning is something we have to encounter uh, when our own capacity for silence touches the silence of Jesus in the story, in our own hearts as well. So, um, and I was saying yesterday that there are a number of examples in the life of Jesus preceding this week uh, in which we see that silence is part of the life of Jesus. It's part of who he was and how he became who he was on the cross and who he is for us. Um, and one of those, uh, the first uh, one in a way, is the experience of the desert when after his baptism, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the desert. And as it's from the Christian desert, from the desert tradition, the monks and mothers, the abbas and amas of the Christian desert, of the Egyptian uh, uh, desert in the third, fourth centuries, it's from that tradition that we have our way of meditation. It's particularly interesting for us, I think, to reflect on the meaning of the desert. And uh, we should also keep in mind as we do so the fact that Christianity was, was uh, a faith uh, that was born, of course, in the Middle East and, and grew there and was the strongest part of the, uh, of the church for centuries. And uh, Christians of, of this remote, barbaric part of the world uh, were regarded as, as uh, sort of second players, really, and the, the strong heart of Christianity was, was there in the Middle East. And we should remember that as we also mourn those people who have, were died, who were killed recently in that terrible attack uh, on the Coptic, uh, the earliest uh, form of Christian church, in a way, in, uh, in Egypt. Um, the Copts were a, um, a branch of Christianity or a root of Christianity that was associated with uh, St. Mark, who had 
gone to the desert to bring uh, the, the gospel there uh, uh, very soon after the death of Jesus. So, what is the desert? Well, another word for it is wilderness. The wilderness is something we are fascinated by, even, or perhaps especially today, when more than half of the population of the globe is living in cities. We've passed that 50% mark. Uh, and the more urbanized we become, the more we become fascinated by the wilderness, but the less we know it. Always strikes me, I lived in Canada for uh, more than 10 years, and um, we were very conscious of the, uh, the wilderness, uh, the great northern wilderness uh, north, of, north of us, but uh, very few Canadians ever penetrated into it uh, very um, deeply. Similarly in Australia, um, the 99% uh, of the population live around the, 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 the coast. They're all very conscious of the great interior. We write beautiful things about it and uh, uh, speak about it a lot, but uh, very few have really gone into the bush or into the, the great emptiness uh, at the centre. And our uh, greater uh, knowledge of the, the wilderness today is through natural history films that we watch comfortably while drinking coffee and uh, eating crisps uh, in our living rooms. So wilderness is something that uh, we need to make personal, not just look at or read about, something we have to uh, uncover and recover. And our meditation is an experience of the desert, an experience of the wilderness. And Jesus went into the desert, the beginning of his, uh, before his public life, before his teaching, he went into silence and into solitude. And silence and solitude are both components of what we mean by the desert. And meditation leads us into this dual experience, or two aspects of the experience of the wilderness, both of becoming silent, of entering into silence, and also of being solitary, which is not quite the same as being alone. Being solitary is, uh, we'll look at that the later, but soli solitude isn't just about being on your own. Not far from here, a few miles away, out in the Atlantic, there's a, a big rock called Skellig Michael, and uh, seven miles off the coast, middle of the, the wild Atlantic. And um, you could understand uh, somebody wanting to go there if they wanted to be alone, uh, to be able to pray and be totally undisturbed. But it's a little strange when you go there and you realize that this was, there was a community living at the top of this <laughs> rock. So they went all the way out there with <coughs> however many are, we don't know actually how they lived or how many of them were there, but they went out there 
uh, in community, to be alone together. So solitude isn't quite the same as, as cutting yourself off from other people. For many, for many people today, uh, the f there's very little solitude. Um, and they're as frightened of solitude as they are of silence, which is why the simple teaching of meditation can be quite threatening or disturbing to them. So they want a, a meditation light. You know, they just like a little bit of relaxation rather than... Well, the monks of the desert didn't go into the desert to just to relax. They went there to be transformed and to find something wonderful. They didn't go there to punish themselves. It would be very perverse to think that they were punishing themselves. They were excited, just as the man in the parable who found the treasure buried in the field uh, went and sold everything he had for sheer joy. It was the joy of this discovery or the beginning of this discovery that led them then into silence and solitude. Um, so let's just uh, reflect a little bit upon this uh, meaning of of the wilderness, of solitude, of silence. First of all, for ourselves today, because again, we can read about it, think about it, just as we can watch uh, movies about the, the wilderness and wildlife and natural history, you know, beautifully made. Sometimes today, often rather fake, you know, they're sort of. Uh, uh, make it slightly fictional so that it, it attracts us more. Um, but we have to begin to experience it, not just to look at it or talk about it. And uh, one way we, we really block uh, this is by living in a digital age. Wonderful thing about the digital age, the ability to communicate, Communities can be formed and nourished much more easily and quickly today by, with the help of uh, the digital technology. But um, when you walk down any street in any city in the world and you see that half of the people or, or the people sitting on a train or in an airport or in a coffee shop or in a restaurant are on the phone. And what does that suggest? They are never alone. Because th there is this constant compulsive uh, need to talk, to be in touch, to wait, to wait for the, the, the redemptive message or the redemptive text, which is you know, something nice is going to happen. Somebody said to me the other day that they, um, they woke up every morning wondering, was something good happening in the world that they could be part of? You know, so it was this constant projection away from oneself or, and into the future. And the phone, which seems like a very intimate thing, and that's we sort of hang on to our phone and we go through major, um, major, DTs if, if the phone is taken away from us, major withdrawal symptoms if, if we lose the phone. Um, 
but the phone is, is not really a very intimate uh, part of our life. It's, uh, it's a very, um, well, it depends how you use it, but if we're addicted to it in this way, it uh, very easily becomes a, a total distraction and embeds us in total distraction. And that's why parents and teachers are often so concerned for the mental health and the emotional health of their students because this addiction now happens so quickly so <coughs> and so uh, compulsively. I was talking to a young father the other day who said that when he sees his uh, 10-year-old daughters um, getting so addicted to it that, you know, at the dining room table, he absolutely won't let them use it at the dining room, at, at meals. But at other times, when the family is supposed to be chatting, spending, hanging out together, uh, they will prefer to be texting or checking their phones. And uh, so every so often, he, he just brings the guillotine down and takes them away from, from his daughters. And then he says, for, for two days, they are hell to live with. <laughs> and they are really pining for this constant distraction, this constant feeling of being connected and so on. Uh, and then it passes after a couple of days, he said. And then they become happy. They, they, the, the life of the community, of the family, begins to return. So, I think we, if we're talking about wilderness or desert, we have to bring this home to ourselves and, and see how much we all are, in monks in monasteries or people raising young families or uh, whatever our lifestyle. If we're living in a digital world, as we all are to some degree, um, our experience of silence and solitude can be really compromised. We just don't know actually what it means, what it feels like. We read about it, but we don't know it for ourselves. John Main's great um, phrase about meditation was always, uh, it's, about, it's an experience that you enter into or become part of. It's not about experiencing the experience. It's not about watching it, looking at it, observing it. It's about entering into it, becoming it. And um, he said, this has, to be, this has to be something that we discover in our own experience, not second-hand. Now, this is perhaps what drove the Celtic monks out to Skellig Michael, uh, and it, who felt very close um, uh, sympathy with the monks of the desert. And they, they were clearly contacts between those Egyptian monks, this is back in the 4th, 5th centuries, uh, and the, uh, the Irish monks here on the west coast of I on the south coast of Ireland. So, what about the desert monks and what, what do they understand by silence and how do they enter into it? What was the desert for them, the desert that Jesus entered into? The desert, too, that we can see symbolized in the cross and in the silence of the cross. Well, first of all, it was about self-control. The silence of the 
desert uh, for them was, was found and, and developed through uh, the control of speech. This is uh, described in the letter of James where he speaks about the tongue as like of the rudder of a ship. It's a very small thing, but it makes a big difference to the direction in which you're going. So he says, if you can't control the rudder of the boat, then uh, you, you've lost your direction. So and this, he wasn't writing here for monks. He was writing for um, the very early Christians living in Jerusalem, probably. So the desert monks took this a little bit more further and developed a more systematic teaching on silence. But it begins with this, uh, this, this need to, to, to control idle talk, idle talk. Um, and that includes not just chatting about the weather, uh, some more that's how we start idle talk. You know, you crack open a conversation by talking about something non-controversial and you sort of get going. Uh, as there's a big difference between England and Ireland. Uh, in Ireland, you just, when I, when I get off the plane and I, uh, in Ireland, it's like jumping straight into a stream of conversation that is flowing continuously and freely. In England, it's like a little dribble uh, that you have to really um, uh, get going, open up a little bit more. But uh, the monks were not opposed to speaking or having a good conversation. Of course, we wouldn't know about them if they didn't speak to each other. And when the young monk came to an older monk and asked uh, uh, for advice or, or help, he would begin rather like we go into a confessional, Father, forgive me, uh, Father, bless me for I have sinned. Their opening uh, remark would be, uh, Father, give me a word. So if they direct opening to a conversation, they don't have to talk about the weather or the news or their health, but they talk about what they need to talk about. I need a word. Okay, I've just walked 10 miles across the desert. I've crossed, walked over from the village to the heritage center. Uh, I need a word. And a word meant not just idle talk, but something life-giving and something personal at a, a deeper level of conversation, in other words. Um, so idle words were um, regarded as uh, really um, dangerous. And it included things like uh, being judgmental about other people. It included um, slander. Having, having a neg making negative remarks, whether they were true or not, about other people. Doesn't, in a way, it doesn't matter. I mean, obviously, it's worse if, if the 
negative things you're saying about somebody are not true and you're just exaggerating them in order to make it more interesting and more juicy. But uh, in one sense, it, it's, it's, as, it's as destructive to silence as uh, just gratuitously uh, describing somebody's faults or, or failings. It's not to say that you, 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 it wouldn't at times be necessary to talk about those, but to talk about them in a way that doesn't break the silence. Good speech, useful speech, St. Paul says, the speech that builds up rather than pulls down, that speech doesn't interfere with silence, if we understand the real meaning of silence. So murmurings is another way of idle talk. A uh, very major problem in um, monasteries or communities where people uh, will not say what they, are sh what they want to say at a meeting, but as soon as the meeting is over, they get out for a cup of coffee and they start saying all the negative things that they didn't have the courage to say openly. And that's murmuring. And as soon as somebody else arrives or the chairman of the meeting arrives, they'll change the subject. So that's one aspect of murmuring. Then uh, they also said that uh, idle talk could mean interfering. Interfering in things that you didn't need to interfere with. Uh, being a busybody. Wanting to control everything, even if it's not really necessary. That kind of interfering speech or um, uh, pushing oneself in where it's not necessary. Um, and of course, like all these vices, they have corresponding virtues. There's also the virtue of, of intervening. If you see something that is bad is about to happen, somebody is about to fall off the boat or something, you intervene. You don't just stay there and look at it. But there's a difference between um, interfering in a controlling, busybody kind of way and intervening for the good of the other person or uh, when necessary, when there's nobody else to do it, for example. Listening to irrelevant words. So when a conversation just begins to... Now that, again, it sounds a little puritanical that you always have to keep to the, to the same topic, which is really the end of conversation, which is being able to play uh, around. But irrelevant words for them would mean, uh, because they were quite strict about what they talked about, and they didn't have a lot to talk about. You couldn't talk about the sand all the time when you're out in the desert. So there's, there are fewer things. They didn't see so many things on Netflix, and they didn't read, read the news, and they weren't so busy uh, as the people living in the cities. So what is irrelevant became something different for them. And what bound them together, uh, or a group of meditators meeting for a meditation group, for example, what binds them together is, uh, is something quite specific. So when we have a meditation group, we, we don't encourage irrelevant conversations. So people start talking about politics or 
you know, gossip. Uh, it, it, it takes you away from what you're supposed to be doing, and everybody would feel that. And maybe the facilitator of the group, if there's somebody there who's constantly um, starting idle talk, that group leader might need to say to that person, you know, let's, let's um, shut up and we can talk about those things at the social, uh, at the social time after, after the group. So but being able to, to see the difference between what is relevant and what is irrelevant, that's also part of the discipline of silence. And, uh, and gossip, as I said. Um, it's understanding that the, the mechanics of learning to be silent and learning what silence is that then helps us to understand what the uh, teachers of the desert and in fact the teachers of all the schools of spirituality mean when they talk about the value of silence. And therefore, it will help us to understand what we're doing when we say the mantra. Why we are laying aside our thoughts. Because at the time of meditation, we are as radical as the monks of Skellig or the monks of the desert as because we are laying aside all thoughts. Good thoughts and bad thoughts. That's just as much a desert existentially as the physical desert of Skelligor, uh, the wilderness of the Egyptian desert. Uh, that's a, 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 a example of, uh, of this in, in contemporary life. Uh, th there was an episode of a series I, I saw recently called The Crown, about the life of the Queen. A bit gossipy, but uh, very, very well acted. And quite moving, as you, as you could see, how the idea of duty and responsibility uh, evolved in a very young and sheltered uh, young woman, finding herself in a role that she, you know, was, was beyond her at first. And there's a moment in it where she's talking to her mother and the Queen is quite um, worked up about some issue in the news or public life and she has to speak to the politicians every day or every week when she has an audience with the Prime Minister. And uh, she's saying to her mother, you know, I really feel very strongly about this and I think I should uh, say something about it and make a difference, you know, I have an influence. And, and the Queen Mother said, no, you can't. That is not your role. And so the Queen, Elizabeth, is rather um, upset by this in a way, and she says, what do you mean? I'm supposed to do nothing? And the Queen Mother said, exactly. <laughs> And that is the most difficult thing to do, to do nothing. Now, um, I'm not saying the Queen was a desert mother, but um, 
uh, it's a little insight into the fact that there are that there is a meaning and a value in doing nothing at times. Sometimes you have to act and inter intervene. But this was a little insight into the, into the creative and spiritual value of non-action, what the Taoist uh, teachers called wu-wei, doing, doing by not doing, making a difference by not doing anything and holding oneself back from the natural impulse to interfere and speak and get into an argument. There's a time for non-doing, uh, as there is a time for silence. And the desert uh, teachers were also very conscious of the link between the control of the tongue and the control of other passions. Passion by passion, uh, they meant um, disordered activities or dysfunctional behavior. So, for example, having an eating disorder would be a passion for them. So it isn't necessarily something that, that you have to be guilty about or um, can be blamed for, but it's seen as a dysfunction, just as a physical illness or something would... would be as well, uh, but, it, but they need to be corrected, it needs to be healed, it needs to be made better. So the control of, of the tongue is connected with other um, necessary ways of controlling oneself, like in food or drink, for example, or watching TV or surfing the internet or whatever other kind of activity or use, use of your mobile phone, uh, these, these are related. And what relates them is the, uh, this quality, necessary quality of the spiritual life, self-control. Self-control. And it's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's the last one in the list that uh, St. Paul gives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fidelity, gentleness, and self-control. But in a way, the self-control, I mean, they're all part of a whole uh, system, so you can't take one out. But it's certainly one of the important elements in this mechanism or this, this, this uh, system uh, of becoming fruitful in the spirit. If we don't have self-control, Desert Fathers also related that to the virtue of discretion. If we don't have that, the whole system is going to be very wobbly or break down frequently. Discretion related to self-control is to know when is the right time to do something, when is the right time to speak, when is the right time to do nothing. He who does not control his tongue in time of anger will not control the passions either. Well, of course, that's the real test. It's when you're angry. It's not when you're nice and peaceful like this. It's when somebody hasn't done something they said they would do or you are up against the clock 
and something gets thrown at you, uh, it's, it's then in anger or that uh, the control of oneself and one's tongue, especially, is most important. And what is anger? Well, anger is something that, well, the, the expression of anger, or the state of anger, is, is transient. You know, um, it can be stirred up by circumstances or people you don't like or by alcohol. Uh, on a Saturday night, there's probably more anger in the world than uh, other times on the streets. Uh, so anger is a, is, a, is, a, is a mood or a state of mind of turmoil, of turbulence, of conflict within oneself uh, that can suddenly arise. But we also know that, you know, we can, we can have anger, or we can see anger in other people, maybe less often in ourselves, which is buried. So it's still a force, but it doesn't manifest itself as a mood or in words or in action. So we sort of talk about passive-aggressive or finding other ways of expressing the anger than actually coming out with it. So the desert uh, teachers were very conscious of anger in, in both of these circumstances. So they, they were not talking about repressing anger. They understood that when anger flashes forth into behavior or into speech, then it's because it's coming from somewhere in yourself. There's a famous story about this of a monk who was living in the com in community and constantly um, uh, irritated by his brethren and, um, and they with him, presumably. And uh, anyway, it was so miserable, he thought, this is a waste of time, I shouldn't be wasting my time here, I, I should be on my own, I'm not cut out for community, I should live uh, in solitude. So he packs up and he goes off and lives uh, for a few days in solitude. He has to go down to the river to collect his water. So one day he goes down with his jug, he collects the water, comes back, puts it on the table, and the, uh, turns around and the, the jug falls off the table and, and spills all the water. So he says, OK, I'll go again. So he goes again, he does the same thing, and he does this uh, uh, several times, and uh, each time getting more and more irritated, and eventually he snaps, and uh, it's like when your computer dies on you or you lose a document or, you know, these are the equivalent uh, things. And, uh, or you realize that you forgot to turn on the, the, the oven uh, when you put the food in. Uh, so he snaps and he explodes. He picks up the jug and he smashes it on the ground and he just wreaks havoc, physical havoc all around him. And then the mood passes because he spends his anger. And then he realizes, where did this come from? This is not 
I can't blame anybody else for this. It's in me. So wisely he, he uh, consults somebody, one of the abbas, and then he goes back <coughs> to the uh, community. So perhaps strangely, as it may seem, he has to deal with his anger in community, even though this is going to be more uncomf uncomfortable. So self-control, an essential element of, of silence. It's also related in the, um, in especially in the Irish uh, monastic spirituality, to the idea of exile. The Irish monks often said, you can't be a monk in your own country. You have to go away. You have to break what for them were the most precious of bonds of, to family and land and uh, put yourself in exile. They didn't all do that, but it was something that they recognized as a valid option. And um, so, but there were two ways of seeing exile. One was literal, that you actually put yourself into a little boat and uh, with a couple of companions maybe, and you pushed off from shore, and you had no idea where you were going to go, but you just let the, the tide and the spirit um, take you. Uh, so that was literal exile, and of course that's why Irish monks got uh, so far around the world and uh, to Eastern Europe and, and Southern Europe. Uh, but the, the interior form of exile is more connected with this necessity for self-control and for detachment. And so some of the desert, one of the desert sayings is, exile is for someone to keep his mouth shut. That's a form of exile, to be detached, in other words, from the passion, passionate feeling of the moment. And one of the f desert sayings has a, a new monk approach uh, one of the older ones and he says, what is exile, father? And the response is, be silent in every situation and say, who am I? This is exile. Be silent in every situation. So we have to understand that silence is not just the absence of speech. It's the control of what we say and saying what is good to say. So it, it implies some level of self-awareness, self-control and of other-centeredness, that what we're saying is useful for other people to hear. And in that detachment, we can ask, experience, the, the, the most basic of all human questions, uh, who am I? Self-knowledge, the desert monk said, is more important than the ability to work miracles. This idea of exile, uh, both literal and interior, was related to um, a, a theme very common in this 
spirituality, the school of spirituality, the idea of the stranger. Uh, in all um, traditional societies, the stranger, the person who turns up at the door, may be a messenger from God, or in some way brings, uh, brings you something. So the stranger needs to be welcomed, uh, to be treated, to be fed, to be sheltered, to be looked after. Not exactly how we treat uh, our refugees, the global refugees, or certainly not some countries like Hungary, for example, who've, although a, uh, they had a referendum on the EU's directive about quotas for exile for uh, refugees. And uh, it, wasn't, it didn't turn out to be a valid referendum because not enough people voted for it. But of those who did vote, the majority said zero. Zero tolerance. No refugees. Not in my backyard. So, and the reason given for this was uh, we have to protect our Christian values. We can't let all these Muslims in. <laughs> So, oh. so the idea of, a, of, of being, uh, not of only of welcoming the stranger, uh, St. Benedict says the guest must, whatever time of the day or night they arrive, must always be welcomed as Christ himself. But being a stranger, understanding that you are a stranger in this world, have the mind of a stranger in the place where you live. The, the desert wisdom tells us. If you will have rest, if you want to have rest, which is a calmness of mind, equanimity, peace, quies. If you want to have peace, have the mind of a stranger in the place where you live. Well, another that may be a, an illustration, I think, of what we mean by detachment. Detachment and that ability to control oneself. So when we begin to explore some of these uh, concepts of the desert, of the wilderness, of silence, we see that what may seem antisocial at first, going, maybe even coming here to Bear Island for the retreat, or maybe even taking an hour off from your schedule to watch, to take part in, in, in this retreat uh, uh, through your computer, that what might seem like antisocial may not be as antisocial as we think. Uh, <coughs> concepts like exile or silence can be transformed when they are really experienced firsthand, into something communal, that they enhance our relationships. They are actually socializing things. This is certainly how the, uh, these monastic uh, teachers uh, understood it and described it. And it makes good psychology as well. Uh, the, the way we are interiorly, the relationship we have with ourselves, how we deal with our own conflicts, this is, this is the, the deciding factor 
in how we relate to other people, how our families operate, how our communities or, or parishes or uh, countries uh, operate as well. So, um, very often when our relationships have become dysfunctional, whether in a family or in a, uh, uh, a business or in politics or between nations even, when, relation when relationships become dysfunctional, angry, we see a great deal of that in the world, uh, we find ourselves repeating the same cycles, going, repeating the same kind of situations. When a family is unhappy, uh, the same emotions, the same kind of words, the same reactions will just be endlessly repeated. And it needs either, whatever, whatever, it needs something to change, whether it comes from inside or outside, maybe you need help, maybe you need therapy, maybe you just need to go away for a week. But there needs some change, because otherwise that cycle of dysfunctional relationship will continue, and the more it continues, the worse it gets, and the more miserable everybody becomes. And that usually will mean when people are miserable, they get angry, and anger is only one step away from violence. So something has to change. And this is what silence and the desert is about. It's interrupting the negative cycles that we are all prone to, and that some of which are unconscious, and changing, changing them, that's all. Just breaking the pattern. And that's what learning silence is about. That's why we learn to meditate. One of the desert monks, Agathon, um, wanted to learn silence, so he kept a stone in his mouth for three years. <laughs> so they say, anyway. Uh, so that might be a little extreme. Um, uh, another one said, he said he often regretted saying something, but he never regretted being silent. Again, it depends on the kind of silence you're talking about. The silence of denial, the silence of moving priests around who were abusing children and not talking about it, that's not what they meant by silence. So the silence that we have to learn is a silence that is uh, healthy, that is reflected in loving, compassionate, and courageous behavior, telling the truth in love. And saying the mantra, no one could say, no one would say it is the only way to learn silence but it is a very direct way of learning silence. And what is interesting with children is how natural it obviously is. And children who have very busy and noisy minds, who are often living on their phones and living in a lot of distraction, these young children and young people 
have a natural, uh, a natural uh, positive response to meditation. And I've never heard children say either that I don't have time to meditate because they meditate when they like. I've never heard a child really say, um, I mean, I'm not saying all children always from day one love meditation. But in, in, as far as I have been able to see, the great majority of them are happy to learn about it. It's as if they don't realize they're thirsty for silence. And they don't have that kind of conceptual framework yet. They don't realize, but as soon as they taste it or drink it, they feel better. They feel, and that's why they like meditation, ask for it, and um, why we, we know that they meditate on their own. So, let's um, take our time for meditation now. <coughs> you could ask, uh, ask her to come in if she likes. Okay. Where was that? Come in. No, it's okay. Just uh, as we prepare for the meditation, I thought we could we could take um, just one of the seven sayings of Jesus, the seven last words of Jesus. We could look at over the next few days, very briefly, really. But um, on the cross, there are seven great sayings. Jesus spoke out of the silence. When we look at the cross, we see a great symbol of silence. It could be, it could be a very uh, you know, a beautiful and joyful representation of the cross, where we see the, uh, the meaning of it and the, the life that it presents. More often in the Western uh, church, anyway, our crucifixes tend to be rather... Uh, emphasize the pain and the, and the suffering. But um, anyway, in either case, they are images of silence, symbols of silence. And it was out of this silence, though, that in the Gospel texts we, we come across seven, seven great sayings of Jesus from the cross. And one of them is this. There were two others with him, criminals who were being led away to execution. And when they reached the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, and the criminals with him, one on his right and the other on his left. <coughs> 
Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. So, however we can discuss what that might mean to us after the meditation. So for now, let's take a moment to sit again comfortably so that we can sit still, feet on the ground, or sitting either on a chair or on a cushion with your back straight, alert and relaxed. Relax the muscles of your face, your shoulders. Close your eyes lightly. And then silently, in stillness of body and mind, begin to say your word, your mantra, which is what leads us into silence. The word I suggest is Maranatha. If you choose that word, say it as four syllables, Ma-ra-na-tha. Ma-ra-na-tha. Listen to it as a sound. Give your attention to it. When thoughts, good or bad, trivial thoughts or other thoughts arise, just lay them aside. Don't repress them, don't fight them. Just lay them aside by returning to the word. Don't evaluate your meditation, just do it without judging yourself. Ma-ra-na-tha. Ma-ra-na-tha. <coughs> 